Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 116 of the Speaking Club podcast. A quick little ditty poem you might find fun. Spine aligned, now I find my body mind. A soundless sigh, don't ask why. Then sigh with sound from the ground. Lips hum, bones thrum. Shake them loose, loosey goose. Stretch and yawn as if newborn. Shake the jaw, loose, it's the law. Soft palate and tongue, there are notes to be sung. Then the resonators, chest, mouth, teeth, vibrators. Call out, hey bro, swing a rainbow. The ribs get a stretch, please don't kvetch. We visit the sinus, more or less, plus or minus. Then nasal and skull, range is not dull. Three octaves expression will make an impression. Lips and tongue start to play. Once again, a new day. My voice is free, rejoices me. What's next? Oh yes, the text. Learn it by heart. That's the start of the art. Ask why and who. Six questions will do. Where, how, when, why, why. And then the five essential P's. I know about these. I am being. I am seeing. I'm transforming. Not performing. Stanislavski. Please don't lavsky. I will practice this and I'll act this. I'll say and I'll pray. This litany each day, know it, don't show it, don't spill it, you'll kill it. While you're about it, you could just once shout it, then contain it, maintain it, don't explain it, believe it and breathe it, feel it, reveal it. I'll say and pray this prayer each day. To crack this, I must practice. <laughs> I love it, brilliant. <laughs> I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. What a way to start the show! That is why I'm chuffed to have Kristin Linklater on here today. But first of all, I want to say thank you and I hope you're well. I'm going a little bit stir-crazy now myself. So much so, I've dug out my Segway and I've been riding it around the house so that I can pretend I'm commuting to work. Have you done anything a little bit cray-cray too? Let me know. But enough of that. We've got a show to get on with. And what a show it is. Kristen Linklater has been helping people to transform their voice into an instrument of passion, power and performance for many, many years. And I'm honoured to have her on the Speaking Club podcast. The voice is such a critical part of being a great public speaker. And Kristen is sharing so much value on this episode for anyone that wants to reach their full potential. So make sure you get out your pen and paper and you might even want to listen to it once or twice more. She's got a long and distinguished career as a teacher and actor in Europe and America. She's worked with some of the most prestigious theatre companies and dramatic institutions in the world. And she's written one of the seminal books on voice technique based on hearing the person, not just the voice. Kristen has also published several articles on the voice and has lectured and given workshops all over the world. And since 1965, she's trained over 200 teachers in her methods. And they teach in the majority of actor training programs across the world, basically. So there's a CV for you. Right. But before we head over to the interview, I just wanted to mention three things. The first is a big favour for me. And that's to ask you to take two minutes to leave a rating or review for the show. It does make a big difference in helping people find us and I love to get your feedback as well. The second thing is to let you know that there is a Speaking Club Facebook group and that's a favour for you because there's a load more great stuff and support that you can get there from me to help you on your speaking journey. And the third and last thing to say is that if you are bored with Netflix or Amazon Prime, then you might well enjoy 
a bit of live stand-up comedy. I mean, proper live, interactive audience stuff. The closest experience you can get to live comedy in your living room. And if you fancy that, come and check out the platform we've set up at Couch Comedy Live. That's couchcomedylive.com and you can see the upcoming shows there. But enough of all of that. It's time to get on with the show. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, Kristen Linklater. Hello. Nice to be with you. In these strange times, indeed. It's lovely to be able to to use technology to see and to to hear you. So um, the first question I wanted to ask you was that you've established a reputation of being one of the top voice coaches in the world. And I wondered if you could share your journey and what motivated you to focus in on the voice, because you do much more than the voice in terms of your career. You've asked a, a, a tricky question because I'm very <laughs> old, so I've had a long life, uh, and you ask me to trace the journey, so I'll have to make some big hop skips and jumps. But I did train as an actress at Lambda way back in the 1950s, and there was a, a, a voice teacher there called Iris Warren who really can change the way that, that people were thinking about voice training she came much more from inside out with the emotional connection through breath and voice uh, rather than training the musical instrument, which was much more historically the way training was done vocally. And so it, it, it was a, a sea change, really, in how you look at the voice. I taught at Lambda. I, I was teaching when I was 21. I sort of learned on my feet. Uh, I didn't choose. People often say, how did you choose? And I think you just said almost, how did I come to voice? I didn't choose it. It chose me. Uh, I, I always say the first thing you've got to be able to do is pay your rent and put food on the table. And I was offered a job by the principal of Lambda, where I, was, I had been trained. Uh, I was offered a job as a pupil teacher. So I began to earn my living, very small living, uh, as a as a voice teacher in the 1950s, when I was in my 20s, and I learned on the job, and then I went to America in 1963, so I was 27, and there I really found what it was all about and what it was connected to with acting, because I came into the world of acting that was really guided and governed in those days by the actors' studios, who so was a very Stanislavskian, mm. uh, inside out, how do you express yourself truthfully, emotionally? And Iris's work married very well with that vocabulary. So partly in the acting field, and then over the next 20 years or more, I was deeply involved with what was then called the human growth movement, uh, but all the explorations of psychophysical release and how we are bound and constrained by habits which are protective and inhibitory habits and how to release those psychophysically. So the work took a really big step. It got much, much deeper and much more physically and, and emotionally and neurologically connected all the way through the 70s and 80s. And, um, and then I wrote my book, or oh, that was published in 1976. Now, you know, I worked with the Shakespeare Company for 12 years, so I was always on my feet doing it as an actor as well as teaching it. Does that give you enough to kick off from? Yeah, I mean, there's loads to unpack there. So, um, so first question that I wanted to ask from that was why going back to to the the method that Iris sort of you came across with Iris. What prompted her to to change direction, and what why was it so different? Oh, yeah. the answer to that is lost in the mists of time, <laughs> I'm afraid. But we speculate now. You've opened up a. I say mists of time and can of worms. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, there's, there's myths that we tell, which is that one is that uh, in the 1930s, Iris knew 
a Freudian psychoanalyst and that the Freudian psychoanalyst had patients who couldn't speak. So he brought in Iris to help them speak. And as they began to breathe, they began to weep and cry and get angry. And as they released their emotions, their voices came out. And then she brought that uh, experience back into her voice studio working with actors working with actors who had been doing voice beautiful musical instrument ping your voice to the back row uh, and uh, had been straining her voices and then when they started to come from inside out rather than outside in they their voices got stronger that's one myth we cannot corroborate it it has no you know it has no uh, academic basis and then there's another one which I like very much. Um, do you remember the King's Speech? Yes. Um, yes. And Logue was his name. Lionel Logue was the Australian voice teacher who helped uh, George VI conquer his stammer. Iris and Lionel Logue had a common student who was a musical theater star in those days called Evelyn Lay. You'll find her name. She was a major, major, major star. And she worked both with Lionel Logue and with Iris. And it just seems to me it's conceivable that Iris got through to Lionel Logue's very psychological work through Evelyn Lay somehow. We're talking 1930s. Lionel Logue had got into the psychophysical side of voice in Australia in the First World War. You asked this story. I'm no, no, you. I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. In the, in the First World War. And he was working with um, soldiers who had returned suffering from shell shock and couldn't speak. So he was working with releasing them from that shock, from very much from a psychological and emotional point of view, and that's, that became the basis on some level for his work. So it was much more personal than just let's make this musical instrument work better. So I rather like that connection. Again, yeah. totally impossible to corroborate. That's brilliant. So I think you, you answered a question that popped up, but I just double, double check. So given the fact that this works with actors, it must also work with singers. Oh, definitely. You know, it's the same vocal anatomy, whether it's for speaking or for singing. In singing, you are interpreting something that has the inflections of how you express yourself have been predetermined by a composer. You could say it's easier <laughs> than for speaking, because in speaking, it's your inflections, your yeah. thought that creates the, uh, the movement of the voice. It's a big subject you've just happened on there. It's fascinating. As, as I mentioned to you sort of before we started, so I, I act and obviously uh, speak as well. And this show is for speakers. And one of the things that I like to teach my speaking students is, I know you sort of we're in control of the inflections and so on, but I like to teach them almost from a, a theatrical perspective in terms of those talks that they do to find those big moments where they need to really sort of like if you had a script where you need to get those emotions, where you need to, to, you know, perform if you like. As an actor, I love using the voice. I'm much less comfortable with my body. And so your technique is quite interesting to me in terms of like my voice potentially could be so much better. I, I, I imagine if that connection between the body and the voice was much stronger. Oh, wait a minute. Your voice is made in your body. <laughs> I guess it's quite cerebral with me, which is not a good I, thing. Oh, it's not a good thing. I'm sorry to be so blunt. <laughs> no, but. no, it's fine. I'm aware. I'm working on it. I mean, I'm just, there are many ways I could talk about this. Uh, uh, but um, I'll just do it in very simply in terms of, very simply, it's nothing simple. It's a very <laughs> complex process. But there's this brain. You've got a skull brain. There's 86 billion neurons. 
you have a gut brain. Yes, I've heard about this. Yeah. Which as has a hundred million neurons. It's so a brain. Really? It's a sensory brain. And it's sending messages. It's sending neural messages through your spine to your skull brain and your skull brain sending messages through your spine to your gut brain. Your heart has 40,000 neurons. Now, these neurons are the ones that are picking up your need to speak. The impulse to speak then has to fire neurons that will send your diaphragm down to collect air and then send it up again and send a million little messages to your vocal folds, magical substances in your throat. And they then translate that into sounds which resonate, can resonate through your whole body. There is another part of your breathing mechanism. So there's a diaphragm which is connected with the solar plexus, which is the emotional receiving and transmitting center of your nervous system. And there's another deep nerve center in the base of your spine that branches out from the sacrum, and that's the sacral plexus, and that is picking up impulses of instinct and intuition. And that's connected with an inner breathing muscle that goes from the diaphragm down to the pelvic floor through the lumbar spine. So your whole body, if, you're going, if you want to speak fully, truthfully, from your feelings and your uh, thoughts, both at once, which is what we need to make sense, then your whole body should be, needs to be alive to that thought impulse, that feeling impulse. And then it turns into, into sound, which actually it, uh, travels from your feet to your head. It's a, it's a fully integrated system, body and breath and voice. So I've got a lot more work to do by the sound of it. I definitely oh, need play. to play. Make it, make it play. Don't make it work. <laughs> well, Playtime. It's quite interesting, isn't it? So I guess this does also go back to spe- speaking with a, uh, an acting head on now. In terms of uh, being an actor, I guess what you're saying is that, and, and it comes back to what you said about the Stanislavski method and all of that, where as an actor, you're not, uh, I guess some people would have two schools of thought about acting, where you are, um, you're not, you're recreating an emotion, you're not feeling the emotion to portray oh, it. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> there may be. And then I guess what you're saying is that as an actor, you have to genuinely feel that emotion and then it comes out in the voice. Uh, yes, it's, it's um, at some point that emotion needs to have been registered fully, I think, as real emotion. And yeah. then I think it sets up uh, connections through that sensory brain, which means that there is a replication of the emotional experience, which is uh, managed uh, and repeatable. I mean, it has, because it manifests physically, it is initially born, conceived and born genuinely in the emotional life. And then it sets up its physical pathways, neuro, neurophysical pathways. Right, I'm with you. And then it's a reimagining, it's a re-experiencing, and it's real. But it's repeatable. It has to be repeatable. It's, so, for instance, so I was playing uh, uh, Lily Langtree last year in Edinburgh, and I had to cry every evening. And so I, I first thought about something that made me emotional, which was my grandma um, yes. going. And then I, I used this sort of NLP technique to recreate that emotion, so to try and get that emotion yeah. for the evening. Is, is it a kind of muscle, in a sense, it's not quite the same, but like a muscle memory. So when you feel that emotion, to recreate that night after night, talk after talk, if you like, is, is a little bit of, of muscle memory. Kind well, of? I think muscle memory is a slight... Um, it's not uh, quite right for this. But. It's not quite that, no, because it's more than that, because you have to, each night, I'm sure when you played it, you were thinking like Lily Lantry. Yes. 
yes, you were. Was. So it was your thought, your feel, mm. your, your thought that created the feeling. So it's it's actually brain memory. It's not just muscle memory. It's an, it's the way you've trained your neurons. I see those the motorways in our brain. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's inside out and outside in. So the body and the brain. So this gut brain and the uh, skull brain are collaborating to recreate the the situation. Which comes and back again. to what you're saying about that whole body. Yes. Coming into play. Yeah, yeah, and your body and mind. Body and mind. Absolutely as one. Gosh, so that's, that's the actor. Gosh. That's that's amazing. As that. <laughs> <laughs> so so which leads me on to onto the question. So we've sort of had a chat about how it works. I realise it's so much more complicated than we can cover in this short amount of time. But how would you describe the difference between a free voice and an inhibited one? in terms of quality and performance? Let me make it as simple as I can. A free voice, free human voice, has three to four octaves of speaking notes from low to high. And that those octaves of speaking notes are there to express the full range of human emotion from low to high to with all the dynamics of a human emotion. Uh, it's also there to pick up the subtleties and nuances of thought. That's prosody. It's called prosody. It's, the, um, it's how people get what it is we're feeling as well as just the descriptive information that comes with the words. There's linear information that comes with words and then there's the vertical experience of the voice. We're all born with with free voices so there's the um the baby is born breath comes in breath the baby's body lives next thing is the baby feels a little pain in its little tummy and breath comes in and it turns to a wail a cry then and the baby's body learns two things i breathe i live i wail i survive <laughs> yes right? and that works for months and months and months. Then, at a certain point, baby, two and a half, three years old, toddler, uh, has a life or death need for a chocolate chip cookie and goes into the kitchen where mother or father or primary caregiver is making supper and says, and I'm not going to do the full volume I need, I want a chocolate chip cookie. I want a chocolate And the parent says, you're never going to get anything if you ask with that nasty voice. When you learn to speak nicely, you can have a chocolate chip cookie. All right, so the next step. So I'll hold my breath. I'll go into the kitchen. I'll squeeze my little throat. I'll have a little bit of breath under my collarbone. And I'll put a little smile on my face. And I'll speak in a very nice voice. And I'll say, can I have a chocolate chip cookie, please? Please, please, pretty please. And lo and behold, there's the chocolate chip cookie. Um, now, that's a very, very generalized story about what, ha what happens. It, it, we have to be acculturated. We have to be able to fit into the family, to the, to the uh, society that we live in. Uh, but it's usually at the expense of being able to express ourselves freely emotionally. And that means we, that the, the breathing muscles start to tighten when they should be loosely receiving impulses. And then the throat muscles, the jaw muscles, the tongue muscles all start to substitute for the breath. And that means when the throat tightens, the voice gets caught in the muscles of the throat. The jaw is held in order to keep motion back. How many of people listening are, are aware of jaw tension at times of stress? Jaw is a fantastic protector. 
against feeling things. So you, if you want your voice to come through, your jaw has to loosen, your tongue has to get stretched and loosened because if your tongue pulls back, it's going to pull your voice down into your throat and you're going to have that kind of vocal kind of croaky thing that happens. And sometimes your voice is going to get very high and sometimes it's going to get very, very low. And that one way or another. One way or another, you have... These constrictions confine the voice to two or three notes to express whatever it is one wants to say, rather than the full possibility of the full range of three octaves wow. of expression. Brilliantly explained. And so just tying that back to something you said earlier with the, the actors that Iris was working with around their their stamina with the voice and uh, this 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 constriction uh, uh, getting rid of that constriction is that what also makes the voice it, it less taxing on the voice as well oh yes the voice is run on the involuntary musculature the involuntary musculature of the body is very powerful uh, when we start to try to control the voice we're actually handing over to less effective muscles. Muscles that actually put strain on the voice by trying to control it, by trying to control breath, for instance. When you get rid of that and hand it over to the involuntary musculature, you still have to strengthen your involuntary musculature. So you have to do your exercise. If you're an actor, I hope you do half an hour to 45 minutes of, of warm-up. Uh, before your show, because the involuntary musculature does have to be stimulated and uh, limbered up in order to receive, particularly if you're doing a, a big piece of theatre like Shakespeare or you know something uh, something that demands emotional expression, which these days most theatre does because it's mm. holding the mirror up to nature. So yeah. nature is full of wild emotion at this time and we need to be able to re-express that if we're going, if we're going to be performers. I think it's true also for, and just to come into this, we're talking about actors a lot, but it's also true for public speakers, that public speakers need to trust their emotional connection with what it is they want to say. They need to trust that it is necessary for them to say it. It's that, and not hide behind a presentational tone that may convey some of the ideas, some of the information, but without impact. The impact comes from, I care about this, I am passionately devoted to what it is that I have to talk about. That is a massive part of what I share with my students is it's about trust. It's about letting go. It's about letting go of the words and, you know, do your prep, but make sure that you tr let go. And it's speaking with your heart rather that, you know, that whole thing is absolutely yes. what I believe in. That's absolutely. Yeah. I was working with a group on public speaking, um, um, institutional group, and after a bit, I said, um, what does this um, work that you do um, mean to you? And that one by one, they said, oh, I care passionately about what it is I'm doing. I really, really think it's important what it is that we're doing. It's my lifelong wish to stay with this work. It's so important. I said, well, those voices are never going to convey your passion. You say, <laughs> I feel passionately. You need to be able to let the, ex the experience of the word evoke the feeling in your body and the word carries the experience of your feeling in it as you speak it. So if you're going to use the word passionately, you don't have to shout passionately. I really care. It needs to come from deep inside your body. Absolutely. You can feel that intensity. 
coming yeah. coming through. We were talking about uh, the voice and using the wrong muscles. It's in in that example as well with that passionately. You have to be a little careful about that. Mm-hmm. Not wrong muscles. It is the difference between the conscious controlling external muscles. So if you say you need to breathe, well, if you if if I say that to people who I haven't yet trained, you're not breathing. They will then push their tummies out or push their chests up and then pull their tummies in, push the breath out and say, now I'm breathing. No, you're not. You are controlling the breath. Breath goes in of its own accord. The body sighs, I think it's eight times or 12 times an hour. It needs to sigh in a very deep way in order to restore the balance of its respiratological uh, connection. Uh, the, a sigh that is filled with feeling, with a relief of some sort, connects you to the inner breathing muscles, the involuntary breathing muscles. If you use your outer muscles, your abdominal wall, You're using conscious musculature that is pushing your organs up against your diaphragm and you are at several removes from your actual true breathing muscles. Now, that's a long explanation. It's a very complex uh, process. I I completely, so I I understand what you're saying. So it's, it's getting back in touch with our body. So we do, you're right, we try and control everything. And I think this leads into my next question, which was, one of the things that I was curious about, uh, well, from your method, I can understand now from our discussion that quite a big focus of your work is helping people unlearn those bad habits and bad voice habits, bad body habits. Well, can um, we take out the word bad? Sure. Those com- compensatory it? habits or, <laughs> okay. you know, I mean, because they have protected, they, are, they grew up, they emerged for a good reason, to protect. So if you say those are bad habits, you're going to, again, put judgment in. And, and, but you can say they are they're habits that protect but are no longer needed. They are unhelpful habits. You know, bad is the, the schoolroom. Yes. Okay. So un, un, those un unhelpful habits <laughs> I'm trying to choose my words carefully right so how, you, yes. when you get a student how how long does that process take or does it vary by person to person to to unlearn those things it varies from person to person uh you know the courses that the workshops I run here are 30 hours and we run through the whole thing some people feel transformed at the end of the week some people uh, say I, I sort of got some of it. Uh, they all need to go home and practice because it's it's a it's a complete reconditioning of mind body process. However, and uh, I once had a man in his fifties came from Singapore or somewhere, and he was a lawyer. And he had a voice was all absolutely in his throat. And he said, and he was training young lawyers. He wanted to to get it because he knew his voice wasn't good. So he said, oh, I, you know, I got to, I have to work on my voice. And um, by the end of Tuesday, so we go Monday, we go Tuesday, and checking in with people. And he says, Oh, now I see. All my life, I thought my voice came from my throat. Now I know my voice comes from my belly. And his voice changed like that. So you can never tell. <laughs> it's like that light, the epiphany moment and how yes, that, when that yeah. happens. But actually, mostly you have to really retrain the way your body mind thinks. So it is in the neurons in your skull brain that the, that the change gradually takes takes hold so practice the exercises is important 
Now, I get the impression um, from what you're saying and from my own sort of experience, the psychological aspect to your work, I, I know that when I work with people, their limiting beliefs get in the way of them sharing their message. But specifically also, I am understanding from our discussion that those limiting beliefs get in the way of actually the quality, the tone uh, of the voice and, and everything else. How, how do you tackle that in your training? That do you explicitly work on that, those sort of limiting beliefs or does it happen as a byproduct of your method? It happens as a byproduct. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is an extraordinary progression of exercises. Uh, it goes through a very logical, organic releasing of each part of the vocal process, from the spine to breathing to feeling vibrations in the body to loosening the jaw, stretching, relaxing the tongue, opening the throat. And in each one of these steps, somebody will find some kind of release. And they're very often tears, they're not necessary, but then they sometimes happen just the first moment somebody relaxes their breathing. Sometimes they happen when they feel the vibrations going through the body. Sometimes they happen when they stretch and relax the tongue and open the throat for the first time. When they relax the, the jaw, something in some part of the body uh, lets go of its protective holding and quite often at that moment there is a story mm. sometimes people want to tell the story i don't do therapy but i do allow the story to find words because that's very often been the problem mm. that has limited people initially is that their emotional experience was cut off from the words that could express it and so when the words are restored to the emotion there's a kind of eloquence and natural eloquence that comes through, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So it is uh, what we say that my teachers, I've trained, I've trained between two and 300 teachers. I trained very um, rigorously. Uh, but what we all say is, you know, the work works. <laughs> Actually, if you do it, the change happens. I don't have to be a therapist. No, I can imagine. So I can imagine that someone had some sort of trauma happen, whether it's big or little, that resulted in, you know, that that I, I have a, a, a story about the loyal soldier within us. The loyal soldier made a decision to protect us that had an impact yes. on the body and then they're still doing it. And I can see how that would unlock you know all of that stuff. It's uh, it's brilliant. No, I think I, I I love that. I can see that for sure. Gosh, um, <laughs> I guess from the myriad of things that you have seen, if you could pinpoint some of the biggest issues that you've seen holding people back from freeing their voice, what would they be if if you were able to give some indication to people? Tension versus mm -hmm. relaxation. I I would like to say that. I have a little, that particularly when I'm working with public speakers, there's um, a primal fear that certainly applies to actors as well, but let me just focus on the public speaker for a moment. Mm. The primal fear that the human being very often taps into when standing up in front of a group of people who they don't know particularly when they or so maybe it's even worse when they do know them. I don't know. Um, the primal fear is they're going to kill me. Mm. And there's an ancient bit of the brain that triggers the fight or flight response. The fight or flight response says adrenaline, sends adrenaline through the body, and usually at that point the stomach holds in order and stops the breath in response to that fight or flight thing. I think there must have been another possibility, which was flirt. Otherwise, the human species would not have um, continued. Fight, flight. So what is that adrenaline? So if we can let that adrenaline come in and let breath connect with it, rather than holding one's breath against it mm. as if it's bad, it's not. It's good. Mm. It's, a, it's a vital 
a, a primal necessity to, but now if we breathe with it, then the words will come and you will be a much more dynamic speaker at that point. Well, how do you get to that point where you can say, oh, right, I'm terrified, but I'm going to breathe into my terror. Here's what you do. You think about your feet. And in a strange inner little mantra, you say, my feet are on the ground. And then you let your mind go through your body and you say, I, silently inside your head, am here. So this is the other thing you're confronting there, which is sometimes you're facing the audience and part of you is saying, I wish I wasn't here. Well, you are here. <laughs> so deal with it. I am here. And then you look at the room, because that's the other thing you tend to do, is sort of close off to all of that. You say, in this room. You're saying this silently to yourself, taking a lovely pause before you start to speak. The audience will be transfixed. And then you look at your audience, at their faces, and you say, with all of you, internally. Don't say it out loud, for heaven's sake. But that's your mantra. I am here in this room with all of you. As you breathe, and then a little sigh, and then launch. Brilliant. Love that. Because you, you are connected. It? So, yes. So, now well, I'll give no, it a go. Well, you don't have to do it now. <laughs> no, no, I will. I will. So, so, uh, so, I feel my feet so that yeah, I'm grounded. Well, and if you're sitting, you feel your sit bones on the chair. Yeah. Uh, I am here. So, you have to do the I. You have to get into your body first. I. Ah. Then stop. Relax your belly. Mm-hmm. I can see you're not relaxing <laughs> your belly. <laughs> okay, then, yeah, that's it. Then let that breath come in and say, I'm here. I'm here. Right, meaning actually in, On this, the, here, right. in this moment. And then look at then. Now leave your mouth open. Relax your belly. Look around your room and say, in this room. In this room. Right. And then it's only me, so... <laughs> With you, Christian. That's right. You are. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. That's very. That's. I love that. I love that. I. I think that's a, a great thing for people uh, to try out. I do, and I love that. Again, one of the things I would say is a that adrenaline is getting you ready for peak performance, which is a yeah. good thing to reframe it into a positive and and that connection with the audience that that technique that you just shared enables you to to make yeah. is the is is a great thing. I yeah. do want to say that it is dependent on a sigh of relief. Yeah. Not a big breath, yeah. a sigh of relief. Yeah. It's a very different experience. Through yeah. your mouth, not your nose. Yes. Okay. I'm going to try that myself. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then I, I have you got any more tips that you could give the audience of speakers here to improve the quality of their voice? Aside from that one, which is a great one. Be interested in it. You'll get to know your voice. What does that mean? Uh, most people don't realize, this is a strange thing to say, but they don't realize that when they speak, they're using their voice. They think they're just speaking. Well, unconsciously, that's enough. You know, I'm speaking. But you can communicate with voice and no speech. Ah. <laughs> ah. Oh. Ah. <laughs> But you cannot communicate with speech and no voice. Yes. So this is, it's that sometimes takes a, a bit of, of taking in, of comprehending. But once you do that, then maybe that sparks interest in, so what is my voice picking up? What is my voice doing? And once you start to be interested in it, 
it's, it's, well, there's a lot of danger. You start saying, oh, I have a voice and I am going to be so expressive. It will be wonderful. No, uh, that would be just playing awful music on the musical instrument of your voice. Your voice is a musical instrument. It's a human instrument. So it's that, it's just taking an interest in how do I connect deep inside with breath, feeling, and voice. There's a number of things, gold nuggets that you've shared. So that's great. And so the other thing I was going to ask you, now you're a speaker um, yourself, uh-huh. and I, I'm curious about how you put a talk together. I wondered if you could share briefly your process for when you do keynotes. There's form and content. So the form comes from who it is I'm talking to. What's the situation? Sometimes it's lighthearted. Sometimes it's, for me, it's deeply serious. Sometimes I'm being asked for um, something that connects not just with what I do, but with a larger theatrical event, etc. Somehow that form then begins to organize the content that I have to say. And when I, and I write it very carefully, uh, I think about, I imagine my audience, the kind of people I'm talking to. I imagine myself speaking to them, and then I write it, which, is, which means an organization of thought that is very helpful. There has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. I don't believe in this thing of you've got to make jokes. I make too many jokes, so there's, <laughs> bound, there's, there's bound to be a joke in there somewhere, I suppose. Uh, but I don't aim for that. In fact, I have to suppress it. Uh, I like to... Well, my thing is the subject matter that I have is full of slightly shocking information. So I like to underline the things that will wake people up. I think they don't know this. Yeah. Uh, I look for things that will make people sit up and say, what did you say? Yes. If I can, uh, and this is probably different from most of your public speaking uh, listeners, if I can, I do a a rather theatrical demonstration (laughs) of something just to show that I'm not talking about something, I can do it. Now, that might be helpful to some people, not for others. So there is a a definite desire in my part to entertain as well as inform. I'm very conscious of my audience when I'm speaking. I want them to get the feeling of what I'm saying, and also I want to shock them into some new ideas about the subject matter. And then you have to say, is is this half an hour spoke? Is this 10 minutes? Is this 45 minutes? Can I tell all my stories? No, I've got, got anecdotal stuff. I think it's an hour and a half. I can go on and on and on. Yeah. You know, this stage in my life, I could chat for three hours with no problem. But so it's the compressing into a form that gives it some kind of, of um, energy. And it's the energy of it. And I do think that from the theater point of view, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed from having a theatrical sense uh, that the there has to be a climax there has to be something i'm aiming towards my main subject and then the a sort of i suppose a recap or a or a reflection on that at the end Brilliant. i don't know if that's of any help at all it is it sounds very similar to, to the format i teach so that's that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. My my sort of last official question was how important because one of my big things that underpins the speaking club and everything that I do is the importance of stories and communication. And and you've just mentioned those. How important are they for you in creating those aha moments for your audience? Do you think the stories? Mm. I can't speak without telling some stories. I have to when I'm when I'm teaching. I have to really monitor myself uh, to edit out the stories that pop up. So so fascinating how the mind works. You know that I'm talking about this this 
isolated fact, you know, shoulder tension, and suddenly a story will pop up and I have to say, no, no, no. Um, or <laughs> this could illustrate it fine. That's, that's interesting. But so for, I think in my experience I've seen, and I'm sure it's true of you as well, that those stories, because of it's the sort of vicarious um, you see yourself through the the hero or heroine of that story, and you mm. can relate to things much better. But you've got such a wealth of them, I suppose. It's well, there are. I mean, there've been amazing things that have happened in my classes. You know. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Right. I do want to talk about your book um, and Good. tell people where they can go and get it. But before that, I have some questions that I ask all my guests. If that's okay, um, the first one is: What is the best thing? that speaking has done for you? Well, <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> I, I, I'm a ham, you know. <laughs> I, I, I can't take this question really. I can't really hook into this question because if I'm asked to speak at a public, at an event, at a convention or a conference or uh, was in, in Shanghai two years ago, three years ago, uh, with people from all over the world, and and we were, we had to do what was it, twenty minutes, and we had to write it first and send it in so they could have their interpreters speaking. So I loved that. I loved the fact that um, I flew all the way around the world and and was able to, and I did a very dramatic speech, and I was, I, I, it's my acting. You know, I don't get to act anymore. I don't much. No, I really don't get to act anymore. So that's my that's my outlet. It's that's performance. a perfect answer. <laughs> Is it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a perfect answer. Absolutely. Okay. I wish I'd have seen that speech. I'd love to have seen it. Um, the next question is: Have you ever had? And again, in the context of speaking, have you ever had a, a, a bad gig? A bad what? A bad speaking gig. Well, if I have, I've forgotten it. I try not to remember these things. <laughs> That's very sensible. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Um, next question. What is... Oh, I had a wonderful one, though. I won't tell oh. you, but there's one. Just, oh, this is just... You can cut this out. You don't have... Well, it was only last year, 18 months ago. In Italy, I have a, law, a big following in Italy, and they were doing a, a new publication of, my, of the translation of my book, and... I, they launched it in a 600-seat, beautiful 16th-century theatre, all gold and gilt and red velvet, and there were 600 people coming to hear about voice, about the publication of a voice book. And at the end of the whole thing, I got them all. I stood there on the stage and I got them all to stand up. I got them all to stretch. I got them all, 600 people, all the way through up to the balconies, stretching. And then I got them all to breathe in the same way, all with, in dialogue with me. And then everybody, ah, all the way from the, from the theater to me. Ah, and then I said, close your lips on that. Um, ah, back from 600 people in the theater. And then I got them to put their hands on the back of the person next to them and feel the vibrations in their backs all the way through the theater. It was just amazing. Wow. That was wow. a fabulous experience. Anyway, you don't have to. No, I love it. I love, that's going to go in with the other question. <laughs> okay, if you can edit all this to make <laughs> sense, worry. you are a better man than I am, Gunga Din, whatever it is. Okay, so my next question, what is the one book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? <laughs> you guys, I mean, these are kind of questions I can't answer. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I'd have said something. 20, 40 years ago, I'd have said something. I can't remember. At the moment, I'm reading off and on a very, very interesting book called How the Brain Changes Itself. Oh. And it's all about the neuroplasticity of the brain. And that's fascinating. Yes. Yes, that is. That's, that's a big. It's a big area. Well, it ties in very well with your work that you do. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. No, well, that's good. That I will. We'll use that one. Um, yeah. We're getting close to the end. 
What's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why? Business? Mm -hmm. Advice. Um, I have, I, I don't, I don't do business well at all, but this place that I've built up here in Orkney was a kind of miracle. And, uh, I, I sat at the table with an old, old, old friend. This is now 20 years. No, not 20 years ago, maybe only 15 years ago. And I told him what I kind of thought I might want to do. I was leaving America, coming here to live full-time in Orkney, thought I really need to do workshops up here, wondered if I should, spoke to this man who had done art workshops all over the world, wonderful man. And I said, I, it's a crazy idea, I, and I can't afford it. I have no money. And he said, do it. I'll give you some of the money. And he gave me the money that I needed to start this place. And I had to do it because he gave me the money. And then I had to find enough money to match it. And then that was, that was um, equaled by donations from all my teachers uh, and that's the way it worked. So it was a kind of extraordinary, organic message from the universe, bit of advice and the huge help from a very generous uh, friend. I love that. So just do it. Make it happen. Just do it. Just yeah. do it. Say yes. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. And the very, very last question, which may tie in with the, that one you just answered. If you can have one mentor... And they could be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional. Who would you choose and why? I hate these questions so much. Because um, I'm very bolshy. I don't like doing what people tell me. Um, I think I have to think about this and <laughs> phone you back. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. I know you're going to hate this. Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. Oh, interesting. Why? Because he wrote those plays that people ascribe to William Shakespeare. Oh, interesting. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I have a very good uh, playwright friend and direct friend who, yeah. who will probably take issue. So interesting, interesting. I am absolutely committed. I've been an Oxfordian for 50 years, you know. It's, yeah. It's, oh. um, but it, it arouses such rage in people. So what, what is it about Edward de Vere that makes you think that he wrote... Oh, everything. I mean, when you think of... Uh, he's the only logical background person that you can see behind all the plays. I mean, he was close to Queen Elizabeth. He was in the court. His, his um, father died when he was 12. His mother immediately remarried. Oh, um, <laughs> she was uh, then made a ward of court by Queen Elizabeth's um, controller man, God, uh, you know who I mean. Yes. Uh, so he was living right in the middle of that court area. His tutor was the man who translated Ovid uh, and Ovid's Metamorphosis. Is, is, and he went to university when he was 14, as people did. He, he, was, he also did a year at the Inns of Court, so he knew everything about the law. Uh, he was a nobleman, so he knew everything about hunting and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. He spent, and this is the big, he, Lord Burley is the man I'm talking about, he um, married Lord Burley's daughter when she was 14. Uh, he went, and this is the big thing, because all the Shakespeare people say uh, Shakespeare never went to, never went out of England, never mm -hmm. left England. I think 18 of his plays, no, 15, 18 of his plays are set in Italy. Italy yeah. Uh, 
Uh, Edward de Vere went to Italy for 18 months. He traveled through all the places that are in those plays, and you can trace details of the of those um, medieval cities that are in the plays that you would never know unless you'd been there. Uh, so that, to me, is really very concrete proof. Of course, the counter-argument is that the dates are wrong, but then my, uh, the argument back to that is we honestly don't know when those plays were written. It's, or it's pretty well supposition. Because they all burned in the fire uh, anyway. Apparently. Well, that's, well that, that's the, yeah, that mm. was what happened to them in the end. But when they were published, if, you know, there's a lot of um, controversy about uh, King Lear and so on, mm. which was, they say was written after Edward Vere died, which was 1604. But we don't know that. We don't know mm. that's when it was written. Who knows when he wrote it? Oh. But he is who you would have as your mentor. That's I'd, I'd love to have him as my mentor because <laughs> he was very dashing. He was very gorgeous. He was a rapscallion. He was, oh. he, yeah. Listen, Kristen, it's been such a privilege to talk to you. Now, t- before I let you go, tell me if you could tell us again the name of your book and what people can get from that book in terms of learning about the voice. All right. The book was published in 1976, which, by the way, was the same, in the, it was published in the same month as my son came out. <laughs> Brilliant. My son and my book both came out in July 1976. Um, my son is an actor. So it's called Being the Natural Voice, Imagery and Art in the Practice of Voice and Language. Beautiful. I was just looking at it because I don't like to read my book because, you know, it's embarrassing. But I was looking at some of the stuff, particularly in the end of the book, and I was thinking it's really rather well written, though I say it myself. And I just want to say, maybe of no interest to you, uh, my father was a very well-known novelist called Eric Linklater. And uh, I think I may have inherited some of his um, his talent for writing. So I think you know, a lot of people say that it's nice to have a voice book that's well written, though I say it myself. And then the, the other one is Freeing Shakespeare's Voice, The Actor's Guide to Talking the Text. And I'm very proud of that one. It's uh, 1992 that was published. So those are the two books that I've written. Brilliant. I'll put a link to those in the show notes so people can go and grab a copy. And in terms of, do you set out your whole technique in the freeing the voice or it'll give give people a good understanding of how they can? Oh, no, you can. There are people who actually work through the book. It's it's, it's, um, freeing the natural voice is arranged in what I call work days rather than chapters. It says, this is what you should do for this day and you should practice this for a week before you do work day two. And then you should practice it. I don't know if, you know, people actually do it, but some people are very conscientious and actually work through the book in that way. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. So, and, and where can people, if people want to find out more about you or come and do one of the courses when, when they're back up and running in the, when the world's gone back to normal, yeah. where's the best place for them to go? Oh, my website, www.linkletervoice.com. When, when, when the world goes back on track, on some kind of track, we will be running workshops again up there. And that's linklatervoice.com. Yes, and you don't have to be an actor to benefit from it. No, there's lots of different disciplines yes. of people. Like you mentioned the lawyer, I would imagine speakers as well. All sorts. Oh, yes, and just people who are, be- who are interested or who have real problems and they can't communicate with each other, etc. I mean, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. And are you on social media at all, Kristen? Yeah, I think we are. I think I'm on, there's YouTube things. We're doing more of that. So there's more of me on social media than there was. Kristen, (laughs) thank you so, so much. It has been an absolute privilege to to have you on the show, sharing all your wisdom and experience around the voice and and everything else. And uh, also great to meet you. And I I'm hoping to, I will, I will book on and come and see you next year and come and free my voice now, <laughs> my head. <laughs> I want to know, well, I'll tell you also, is, is, 
it's it's really been fun talking with you because you're a real person, which sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes people are a little unreal. Um, so I've enjoyed our chat very, yes. very much, Sarah. Yes. Thank you for that. She is amazing, isn't she? We had an absolute blast recording this show, and I think she is a legend, literally 84 years old and still a force. Please do go and check out Kristen's YouTube channel and check out her books too. Thanks so much for you for joining me here. And I hope that you enjoyed the show as much as I did recording it. Take care, stay at home, but still go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book, Straight to the Top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. To get the book for free, plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.